Our Father, once again, Lord, we are so, so thankful and so joyful that you've allowed us to be here. Thank you that it's because of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're able to be here and that you have, Lord, abundantly blessed your people here at Calvary. We thank you for the fact that, uh, Lord, there are many, many amongst us who are here, even though they are suffering physically. I thank you that you have um, strengthened them today to be able to be here, Lord. I pray that the time in your word would be a time where we hear you and we hear the message of your word in Colossians 1, that it would encourage us, Lord, to live lives different here on this earth, lives that are uh, worthy of our Lord, our King. We ask you for your blessing upon our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're back in Colossians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn them there to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to be focusing in, at least starting to focus in, on verses 10 through 14 this morning. And um, I've titled the this uh, sermon, Walking Worthy of the Gospel. Walking Worthy of the Gospel. And so we're in Colossians chapter 1. If you turn there. Well, I love being reminded of Christians who, uh, though weak and susceptible to sin and vulnerable to sin as we are, um, are we're just Christians who finish the race, the Christian uh, race, well. And um, from time to time, I'll read biographies or be reminded of Christians who have passed away, maybe recently or hundreds of years ago, just to be reminded of the fact that I need to be a man who walks worthy of the gospel all the way to the end. And um, I was preparing this last week for um, a Bible study for our mom's group uh, here at the church. And I started reading into the life of Susanna Wesley, uh, who uh, was the mother, if you know, of Charles and John Wesley, uh, who wrote many hymns and and just different um, pieces of literature that were very edifying for many, many years. We sing many of those hymns today. Uh, Susanna Wesley lived some 300 years ago. And um, she, of all people, ended up marrying a pastor, those bad guys. And um, at the age of 19, she married a pastor. And she bore him, would you believe, 19 children. Yeah, 19 children. Nine of those uh, babies died when they were uh, still babies, nine of them. And so she suffered through the grief of that. Uh, and she was not certainly not a woman who... Um, uh, lacked in suffering and grief. Uh, in fact, she had many, many health issues. Uh, Susanna Wesley did. Uh, she had many marriage struggles. In fact, at one point, it's documented that her husband actually, they separated for a period of a year because of the seriousness of the issues that they were experiencing. Uh, he was a pastor, but he was also kind of the governor of the town that they lived in. And so there was a lot of opposition toward him and toward Susanna and their kids. Uh, a lot of um, persecution that they suffered, both because of their faith as well as because he was uh, kind of the governor of that particular town. And even yet, in the midst of all of that suffering and turmoil, she was a woman who had a great impact. Uh, she homeschooled all 10 of her kids. Think about that one. Uh, including John and Charles. And these two men in particular were two of the men that God used to start a revival in England during those times, uh, once they were grown men. Uh, and then uh, a revival in the American colonies. So even in the midst of all of her suffering and all of her struggle, she had a huge impact in and through raising of her children. She was a great example also of contentment in the Lord and devotion to the Lord. Uh, it's documented that I think it was Susanna Wesley who was uh, so devoted to her time in prayer that uh, she basically would set herself up either in the kitchen or in a different area of the house, and she would put a blanket over her head, compl- covering herself completely. And her kids knew that if Mama had her blanket over her head, she was praying to the Lord, and they better not mess with her in those moments. So she was devoted to the Lord even in the midst of those struggles. Toward the end of her life, she wrote this, Help me, Lord, to remember that religion, or Christianity, is not to be confined to the church, nor exercised only in prayer and meditation, but everywhere I am in thy presence. She was a woman who wanted her private devotion to manifest itself externally and outside of her home in any possible way, so that she might bring glory to Christ. She wanted to live a life worthy of the gospel. Pleasing to the Lord. 
She wanted to know her God, and she wanted others to know that her life was an overflow of her love for God, and her greatest desire was to walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him. Beloved, that is the kind of life that, that Paul prays that the Colossians would have. A life that is, that is committed to walking worthy of the Lord, to be pleasing to Him. And so that's why he prays for these Colossians and intercedes for them here in Colossians 1. He has already affirmed them. He's given thanks to God the Father for the transforming power of the glorious gospel in their lives. And now he prays for them and intercedes for them in verses 9 through 14. He prays that they would be spiritually vibrant, that they would continue to grow and to mature. He prays that they might have spiritual insight first and foremost in verse 9 as we saw last week. That they might be filled with the knowledge of, of His will, of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants them to have their eyes opened to the great purposes of God. We said last week that verse 9 when it's talking about the will of God, Paul is talking about something much bigger than God's will for my own personal little life. Yes, Once they understand the greater purposes of God, which is what he means by the will of God, the greater purposes of who he is and what he is doing to restore a broken world through the redemption that he's accomplished in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once they understand that will of God, yes, it's got ramifications for the way that they need to live and the direction for their own personal individual lives. See, Paul is concerned for how they live their lives, how they live in obedience to the will of God. But he wants them to understand that in the light of the bigger picture of the grand purposes of God, the great story of God. And so he prays that they might come to know God and His will in a greater, fuller, more complete way, because if they understand the will of God and His purposes in this world, they are going to be propelled to practical Christian living that exalts Christ. So that is what he's praying for here. In other words, as you and I understand the greater purposes of God for restoring a broken and fallen world through the person and the work of Christ, our individual stories will make a lot more sense to us in how we fit within that grand story. See, we are only a small part of the big picture, right? And may I say, beloved, that for many of us, Part of the reason why we are so complacent and so lethargic and so passive in the Christian life right now, if indeed you are in Christ, is that you have a very small God. We have a very small God and a, and a very small view and understanding of what God is doing in this world. See, life is bigger than us, right? Much bigger than us. And so when we don't understand God and the greatness of this God and His purposes and what He's doing in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, then we settle for lesser goals in this life and lesser agendas, if you will. We don't pursue the greater purposes of the Lord. We're not focused upon His mission because we don't understand what He's doing in this world. We don't understand Him enough. And that's exactly why Paul is praying for spiritual insight and spiritual understanding. That their horizons may be expanded that they might see the bigger picture, and then their individual lives are going to make sense and what God has called them to accomplish within this greater mission. See, if we would only see and understand that we have been called to live for something bigger than ourselves, beloved, it would propel us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we need spiritual perception. Oh, that we would see the glory of Christ, beloved. That we would see Him for who He is. And in light of who He is, that we might be propelled to live differently. That's the problem. We need spiritual perception and spiritual understanding. And only God and God alone can give us that. And that's why Paul prayed for the Colossian believers. Look at the great blessings that you have. Look at the greatness of the purposes of God. I want you to understand the greatness of the will of God so that you may live differently in this world. That's what he's praying for. He's praying for this worthy walk in the light of understanding who God is and what he's doing in and through the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 10 through 14. So after having prayed in verse 9 that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, notice what he says in verse 10. He tells them the goal for his prayer. He says in verse 10, so that you will walk 
in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. This is Paul's goal for them in his prayer. That they would please the one whom they profess as Lord and Savior by walking worthy of their King. By walking worthy of Him. In fact, the word walk there in verse 10 is synonymous with conduct. It has to do with the way that we live our life, with our lifestyle. That's what he means by that metaphor, walk. It is our lifestyle. It is our conduct. And notice, Paul prays that they might walk or conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's a beautiful word, the word worthy there. It has to do with with conduct that is in balance with or equal to one's calling. It has the idea of equivalence or balancing the scales. I was thinking about this this week. I am a child of the King. I am a child of the King. And I am called to walk in a manner worthy of that King. Like royalty. Not in the arrogant, proud sense, because I brought nothing to this salvation. But I'm a child of the King by grace through faith alone. And so therefore, I need to be a man who... who, People can look at it and say, he is a man who is about quality living like the king. He lives in a manner worthy of the king who saved him and who he professes as Lord and Savior. And Paul elaborates, if you notice. He says further that this worthy walk, which is our ultimate goal, should have as its purpose in verse 10 to please him in all respects. This is what it means to live worthy of the Lord. To please Him in all respects. Listen, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you, though you may struggle with sin, this here in verse 10 is the greatest goal of your life. To be pleasing to the Lord. You want to walk worthy of the King of your Master. That should be the greatest pursuit of your life. Everything about the Christian life is about the glory of God. That's why Jesus came to die for your sins if you are here this morning. And that by repentance, returning from your sins and putting your faith in this Christ, you may be restored to that grand purpose of glorifying God. That's why you were created. To glorify God by knowing Him and serving Him and loving Him with joy. That's why Jesus came. He didn't only come to deliver us from hell. He came so that we might be reconciled to God and worship Him for the worthy one that He is. And so for the Christian, being pleasing to the Lord is what life is all about. Listen, some people have asked me, you know, you're always talking about exalting Christ. Is that the latest catchphrase? No, beloved, it isn't the latest catchphrase. That's what Scripture calls us to do, to worship God in Christ, to exalt His Son. That's why He sent the Spirit of God in the book of Acts, that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of people to the risen and exalted Christ. And that's why we're here, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and to be pleasing to Him. That is the ultimate goal for the Christian life. And may I say, that is the ultimate goal for any of you who are not in Christ this morning, that you will repent and turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ so that you may live for the glory of God, the exaltation of Jesus, and stop living to exalt yourself. That's why Jesus came, beloved. And so that is the greatest pursuit and ultimate goal of the Christian life. And so as Christians, as we walk through this Christian life, the the questions that we always ought to ask ourselves are these. What would bring the most glory to God in this situation or decision? How might I best please my Lord in my response to this difficult circumstance or this difficult person? What would bring most glory to God in my conduct Am I conducting myself worthy of the king, you see? That's what Paul prays for them. This is what we see in verses 10 through 14 is a call to walk or conduct worthy of the Lord. Worthy of the Lord. And what we see in these verses, in verses 10 through 14, we're going to look at the first two characteristics of verses 10 through 14, but we see four characteristics of the worthy walk that is pleasing to the Lord. Four characteristics of the worthy walk that is pleasing to the Lord. And I want to show you where I got those. These characteristics come to us via four participles given to us in verses 10 through 14, or 10 through 12 in particular. Notice this. Notice in verse, the middle of verse 10. Bearing fruit. That is the first characteristic. 
Second characteristic is given to us at the end of verse 10, increasing, increasing in the knowledge of God. Third, at the beginning of verse 11, strengthened, strengthened with all power. And then fourthly, giving thanks at the beginning of verse 12. Giving thanks. These four participles and the four and the words that are attached to them describe for us what this worthy walk looks like. And I want us to see the first two of these today. First of all, I want you to notice the worthy walk. The life that is pleasing to the Lord is, first of all, a productive walk. It is a productive walk. He says, bearing fruit in every good work. You know what God's desire is as your heavenly father if you're a Christian? It is that you as his child would live worthy of the king by being productive in the Christian life. That you would produce good works. Paul says, bearing fruit in every good work is what I desire for you, Colossians. One key metaphor often used by our Lord Jesus Christ was that of fruit or fruit bearing. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7... When speaking to the multitudes about the deception of false teachers, Jesus taught the multitudes how to distinguish between a false teacher and a true, genuine teacher by looking at the fruit or the product of their lives. In Matthew seven fifteen, he said this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So is everyone, so is every good tree that bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. What did he mean by that? He meant the product of their lives, whether good or bad. See, it doesn't matter what a person professes. If they say they believe in God and they believe in the Bible, if their life says something different, if they haven't given their life to Christ, if they haven't turned from their sins and put their faith in Christ and live for the glory of Christ, it doesn't matter how much they say they believe in God. If the fruit of their life, the product flowing from their lives, isn't Christ exalting, right? It isn't about obedience to the Lord. In John chapter 15... On the night of his betrayal, our Lord Jesus talks about obedience and fruit-bearing almost interchangeably. And in John 15, he likens himself, Jesus likens himself to a vine, and his father is the vine dresser, a person who who prunes and cultivates vines. And, And on this vine are various branches. You might say people who profess to know Christ. Various branches. And the distinguishing factor between the living and the dead branch is twofold. The living, true branch, or Christian, you might say, abides in Christ, first and foremost. He, is a, he or she is attached to Christ, is connected to Christ, derives his lifeblood from Christ, trusts in Christ for his vitality. And consequently, he is a person who bears and produces much fruit. Right? Much fruit. Righteousness flows from this person. The opposite is true of the lifeless, dead branch. It does not abide in Christ. It does not derive its life or vitality from Him. And and thus, he or she doesn't produce fruit. And so the vine dresser, the Father, completely removes it. So in John 15, the person person who abides in Christ produces fruit, God-honoring fruit. And the person who does not abide in Christ does not produce fruit. So our Lord Jesus spoke of fruit or fruit bearing as a way to distinguish the genuine from the fake, the living from the dead. You say, Kempis, why are you getting into all that stuff about fruit and fruit bearing? Because of what he says here, right? Paul tells us that the worthy walk that pleases the Lord is a life of bearing fruit in every good work. Paul has already referred to the fruitfulness of the gospel in the Colossians and all over the world in verse 6. But he, he's praying for them that they would not stop producing fruit, that they would be fruit-bearing people. And what does that look like? That they would be people who are zealous for good deeds, 
who are producing good deeds. That is to be characteristic of their lives. It's a present participle. It's to be the pattern of their lives. They are to be fruit-bearing people, doing good for others. Beloved, God wants His children to be a productive people. Have a productive walk by doing good works. You say, Kempis, we're not saved by our good works. Yes. We have said it many times. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved unto good works, right? We are called to be zealous for good works. We are called to do the works that God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them in Christ. So we are to be people who are zealous for good deeds. You know, a few years ago in Guatemala City, we were doing a conference for about 150 people. And it was one of the best conferences, well organized. The food was amazing. I was even wondering during this conference, like, who made this food? This is great. Must have like 10, 15, 20 volunteers focusing on all of these great, all this great food. And during a break, I made myself to the, uh, my way to the, to, the, to the men's room, to this backyard. And as I'm heading to the, to the men's room, I see this little old lady in her 70s probably, on her hands and knees over in the corner of the yard, way back yonder. And she's over there washing pots and pans over there by herself. And I walked over to her and I said, hey, my name is, Kem- is Kempis. Good to meet you. What's your name? She said, my name is Maria in Spanish. And I said, wow. I go, are you the only one doing this? She said, oh, no, there's a couple of other helpers. I go, wow. I said, thank you so much for this service that you're performing. This is amazing. The food was amazing. I just want to commend you for that. And she said this, she said, it is the least that I can do for my Lord. It is the least that I can do for my Lord. See, that's the attitude, beloved. That's the attitude that we need to be praying for one another, that we would have towards service, that it's a joy to serve Christ. That it's, from, that it's motivated by, by this, this King who has come to deliver us from our sins and our love for this King and this Savior. Amen? We need to have that kind of an attitude here. See, a distinguishable mark or characteristic of a true believer is one who is walking worthy of the gospel by producing fruit in every good work. Now listen, if you are not a fruit-bearing person, and what characterizes your life is always looking out for what is in it for you, And when you come to Calvary, the pattern of your life is basically to come to church to see what you get out of the church. How others may serve you. When you come to church, it's not about what you can give. It's not about how you can bless others. It's not about how you may encourage others. It's always about what people are going to do for me. And you get upset and you get angry or you get disheartened when people don't pay attention to you. It's always about you. Beloved, listen to me. If that is the consistent pattern of your life and the direction of your life, i got to tell you, it may very well be that you are not a Christian. Have you thought about that? If you are not a fruit-bearing and every good work kind of person, and that is the pattern and the direction of your life, though you may struggle, and there may be difficulties at various times, and there may be seasons in your life, or maybe you're struggling physically, something is hindering you from being able to serve the Lord, but you want to, and your passion is to do that because you're joyful for what God has done in and through Christ for you. If your desire is to be serving the Lord, then thank God for that. But if that is not you, And your attitude anytime you come amongst other people is, what are they going to do for me? You come to church merely to listen to message after message and see performance after performance, and that's what it is for you. It's not about then fleshing that knowledge of God out and serving Christ and serving other people. You need to be very, very concerned about your spiritual condition. And I say that because I love you. And I say that because I care for you. And I don't want you to be deceived into thinking that you are in Christ when the pattern of your life says otherwise. And there are no affections for the Lord. And there is no joy for serving Christ. And it is all about you rather than service of other people as a manifestation of your love for Christ. You are one of those whom Jesus said in Matthew 7, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. May I say to you, today is a day when that can change. 
Today is the day when you can repent and turn from your sins. When you can stop living for yourself and trust Christ. And God will forgive you in Christ. Will He not? He will reconcile you to Himself. He will forgive you. You will be delivered from the wrath of God for your sins and be restored to a right relationship to your Creator and live to exalt Christ, right? Today is the day when you can abandon your sin and the shackles of slavery to your sin can be, can, can be, you can be delivered from that. I pray that you would examine that and that you live to do good for Christ's glory and not your own, beloved. We all have to examine ourselves continually doing that. If, if this is what is to characterize the Christian, is this true of you? Are you a fruit-bearing and every good work type of a person? Does that, does that characterize your life? Is that the desire and the joy of your heart? Even though there may be limitations at different times in your life, those can be under... God, God certainly, certainly sees that. There are others of you here who are so zealous for good deeds. I mean, you can't wait to do good for others. You're constantly meeting needs, constantly showing up to church, Sunday mornings, during the week, constantly looking to see how you can encourage others and and thank them for for what they are doing and for how God is using them. You are a person who has a joy constantly. It's your joy to serve the Lord. I mean, some of us elders have even had to meet with you and say, hey, take it easy and stop hogging up the good works for crying out loud. There are some of you like that. And I want to commend you and say, excel still more. Don't stop being faithful. Don't grow weary and tired. And look for opportunities to be an example and an encouragement to others. Disciple others to take ownership of service here in the church. Encourage others. Bring needs before others. Pass the wealth around, right? Others of us simply need encouragement to be fruit-bearing people. To abound in the work of the Lord. You're tired and you're discouraged and you're not motivated and you're feeling underappreciated. Beloved, many times the reason why that happens in, the, in some, some of our cases is that we take our eyes off of Christ and we're motivated by the wrong reasons. We're motivated by people's, people coming in and appreciating us, expressing gratitude for us, taking note of the things that we are doing. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you need to realize whether you are appreciated or not, whether people come to you or not, beloved, it's about serving the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's about doing what is intrinsically beneficial for others. That's what Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 says. It says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to those of the household of the faith. And that word good... In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, signifies doing that which is intrinsically beneficial for others. In other words, whether they they appreciate you or not, whether they affirm you or not, you and I ought to be committed to doing that which is good for others, whether they take note of our service or not. Our motivation is to serve Christ and serve our brethren for their edification and to build them up, beloved. It's taking up after the pattern of our Lord Jesus. It says that the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. See, it's following after His pattern. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve us and to give His life a ransom for many. We follow in the footsteps of our Lord when we do things for the glory of Christ and the good of others, irregardless of how they treat us, you see. We ought to be fruit-bearing Christians who do good unto others, who are producing good works for the glory of Christ and the good of other people. You know, some of us have adopted this attitude of, you know, Kempis, I've done a lot in the past. You know, I mean, I'm going to call up Ruth this week and I'm going to set up a meeting with her and you so that I can tell you about all my past accomplishments. I mean, I've done a lot of good things. I would say to you, listen, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Some of us live too much in the past. Our past accomplishments and how at one point we were vibrant for Christ and we were sold out. But now for years and years we're not. Beloved, listen to me. There may not be any life there if that's you. But if you are discouraged and simply going through a a stage of your life, maybe with physical ailment or whatever, that's understandable. There are ways that you can serve. There are ways that you could still be a fruit-bearing Christian who is committed to doing good for other people, even in the midst of your limitations. Don't just look at your past. 
and say, oh, look at all that I've done in the past. You need to continue to press forward, doing that which is good for the glory of Christ. Some of you need to contact Ruth this week. Contact Dale Ventris, the, the lead of our deacons, and ask them, what are those needs that are out there? What are those behind? The, I'm a behind-the-scenes kind of person. I don't want to be up front. Tell them that, and they will find something for you to do, something for you, a need that you can fill, beloved. There are those needs abounding here in our church, you see. Depending on the giftedness that the Lord has given you, you can be useful. So Paul prays that they would walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in all respects. And what does that look like? That worthy walk is, first of all, a productive walk, bearing fruit in every good work. But secondly, it is a growing walk. The worthy walk is a growing walk. He says at the end of verse 10, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He prays for a growing walk, that they would increase continually in the knowledge of God. Remember that he has already prayed for them, that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in verse 9. Same word for knowledge here. That they would have a fuller, more complete knowledge. They would continue to grow in that knowledge. And I think part of the reason why he reminds them here, he, he prays for them about increasing in this knowledge once again, is that it is not just a starting point. Knowing God is not just a starting point. It is to be the active, ongoing passion of our lives to continue to grow in our knowledge of God. And so he prays for them for the same thing. You know, you and I are never done, never done knowing God in Christ Jesus, right? We're never finished I mean, the infinite riches of who He is. We will never, ever, ever, ever come to the point where we know Him enough, beloved. And I want to show you this. Turn back a page or two to Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul was such a great example of this, of a man who constantly, constantly, constantly pursued the knowledge of Christ. He was never content. He, was never, he never came to a point where, I'm done I know enough about Jesus. And in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 7, he looks back at his former manner of life, and he says, but whatever things were gained to me, and he has just talked about those things that he could have counted as accolades, as rewards for himself in verses 4 through 6. If there was ever anyone who could have boasted in his own rewards within Judaism... That religion, it was the Apostle Paul. In verse 7, he says, Whatever those things were, I have counted as loss for the sake of, of Christ. He says, Knowing Christ is everything for me. Who cares about all my past accomplishments? It's all about knowing Christ as he looks back at what happened to him in his conversion. Well, what about now, Paul? 30 years later, he's writing this letter to the Philippians. Some 30 years later, what is the pursuit of Paul's life now? Look at verse 8. More than that, I count, this is a present tense, I count in the present, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So some 30 years later, what is the passion and the pursuit of the Apostle Paul? It is to continue to grow in the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. He wants to continue to grow. That's the passion of his life, the pursuit of his life. He's never content. Well, what about in the future, Paul? What are you going to devote your life to in the future? Verse 10, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And from verses 12 and following, he continues to talk about the fact that he presses forward to a greater knowledge and intimacy with Christ. He's never content. Beloved, we never stop growing in the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. We never stop. Never stop. Now some people say... Well, I know God, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm growing in the very knowledge of God. There are many people who profess that. How do you come to know God? You can't just know God on your own, right? The way that you come to know God is by turning from your sins and believing in God's provision for the payment of your sins, right? Who is that? Christ. That's how you come to know God. Christianity is about a personal relationship with God by faith in Christ. 
In fact, that's what eternal life is, a relationship with God. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To come to know God is to know Christ. You cannot know God without knowing Christ and putting your faith in Jesus for the payment of your sins. You cannot come to know God unless you know Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. This requires that you denounce self-worship and give your life to worshiping God by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. My friend, if you are here this morning, I challenge you, I plead with you that you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Christ. You cannot be forgiven of your sins. You cannot come to know God. You cannot grow in the knowledge of God this way in an intimate, personal way, unless you put your faith in Jesus. It doesn't happen. This is not intellectual or mental knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. It's coming into a relationship with God and learning about His character and His purposes in and through the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus alone. That's how you come to know God. What if I'm not sure? How do I know if I have come to know Him, campus? How do I know? Well, one way that the Colossians knew, is that they had evidence, faith, and love, and hope, right? They had evidence, fruit. Epaphras had told Paul, these people bear fruit. They are known for their love and for their hope. And the gospel is increasing amongst them, both spiritually and numerically, and they're proclaiming Christ. The way that, they, that Paul knew that these Colossians knew God is that they were a fruit-producing people. You see, knowing God and obeying Him go hand in hand, do they not? Knowing God and obeying Him go hand in hand. And it is very true that we have to distinguish between the root and the fruit. The root of our acceptance before God is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The root of our justification of our acceptance before God is Christ Jesus alone. Nothing that we bring to the table, no good work, no humanitarian effort, nothing that you've done in the past to save a life will get you accepted before God. Only Jesus Christ. That is the root. His work, His person is the root of our justification. But the fruit, the fruit of our lives must match our profession. We were saved unto good works to be fruit-bearing people. And if we say we, are, we know God and are growing in the knowledge of God, as Paul prays for here, then, beloved, you will obey God's commandments, motivated by love for Him and for your King. They will be true of you. You can't say, I know God, and yet, yet you don't have a pattern of good works. You never serve anyone. There's no joy there consistently in your life. You don't find fulfillment and satisfaction by serving other people as a reflection of what your Savior has done for you. You can't say, I know God, and I'm growing in my knowledge of God, and yet you're not committed to Christ and to His people. It is is not consistent, you see. It cannot happen. And there may be struggles, and there may be difficulties and seasons of life that may come and go, yes. But that can't be the pattern of your life for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. It just doesn't happen, beloved. It says something about God not being mighty enough to change you and to propel you to live a life of good works, does it not? You say, geez, you keep harping on that one, don't you? Over and over again, how could it be that you are not living... Yes, beloved, because I don't want you to be deceived. I care about you. I love you. I don't want you to be deceived into thinking that basically being a churchgoer and coming in and being a Sunday morning Christian is what Christianity is about. It is not what it's about. It is a life transformation that shows itself in the way that you live, in the way that you walk. So if you know God and are growing in the knowledge of God in this way, then you should be connected to the people of God. There's no way that you can be a Christian if you're not committed to the church. Not Calvary Bible Church, the redeemed, the bride of Christ, right? The church universal, if you will, of all those who are redeemed in Christ. And yes, it finds expression in this local church in which you are a part of. Where do, you, where do I get that? Where do I get that? Look at 1 John chapter 2. Turn there. 1 John chapter 2. 
if I know God and I'm growing in the knowledge of God, it should show itself in the way that I live, in my obedience, in my fruit bearing, if you will. That's how those first two characteristics are connected together. First John chapter 2 and verse 3. Notice this. By this, we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments, the one who says, here's the profession, I have come to know Him, and yet does not keep His commandments, is a what? Is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. In other words, you could profess all you want, you can say all you want that you know God and you're growing in the knowledge of God, but if it doesn't show itself in loving obedience to Christ, you are a liar. And the truth is not in you. And this is not a judgmental statement by, for, by John. He is speaking the truth here so that they would turn from their sins if indeed they are not in Christ, right? It's a loving exhortation, isn't it? Verse 5, But whoever keeps his word, if this is the pattern of your life, you want, you're obeying the word of God. In him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says He abides in Him. If you're attached to Him, connected to Him, ought Himself to walk in the same manner as He, meaning Jesus, walked. And how did He walk? Turn to chapter 3 and verse 16. Just a page over to your right. How did Jesus walk? We know love by this, that He... Jesus laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Hmm. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You know what John, in a loving way, is saying there? Put your actions and your obedience and your love to practice if indeed you belong to Him, if indeed you know Him and you're growing in the knowledge of God. It will show itself in the way that you serve your brethren. Following after the example of Christ. So what is one way that you show if you truly know Him? Do you live to love Him by being obedient to His commandments, being devoted to good deeds? Is it a joy for you to serve in the church and to care for the needs of others? Man, Kempis, this is like a soapbox for you, isn't it? Yes, it is. You better believe it. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap, right? You cannot fool God. Don't be deceived, beloved. If you don't see fruit in your life, then you don't know God. And I plead with you that today is the day of salvation for you. Stop being deceived. Stop pretending to follow Christ when indeed you know that you are not. You know how this shows itself in our lives? If we are genuine, if we are knowing God and are growing in the knowledge of God? It shows itself in your commitment to the church. We have a massive misunderstanding of what the church of God is. The church of God is not this building. The church of God is not a structure. The church of God is not a movement. The church of God is not um, anything else that you can define it with. The church of God are the community of redeemed people who have turned from their sins and put their faith in Christ, past, present, and future. That is the church of God. The community of those who are saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ. That is the church of God. It is not a structure. It is not this building. Just because you come to church Sunday mornings doesn't mean that you are committed to the church if that's all you do. No. That's why, if the, heaven forbid, if the building were to burn down tomorrow, heaven forbid that should ever happen. If it did, you know what? We could go meet at McCambridge Park, and we would still be the church of God. It's the people, the redeemed people of God, beloved. Listen to me. If that is the case, then commitment to the church, if you know God, and you're growing in the knowledge of God, commitment to the church is not optional for the genuine Christian. It is not optional. It's not, church is not just for those who are truly sold out. That's for the fanatics of the church. No. 
Church is not optional. Being with the people of God in fellowship, hearing the preaching of the Word of God, mutual edification, practicing the one another's publicly here, corporately, individually during the week is not optional. It is not. If you know God, then that will be the passion and the desire of your heart, though there will be seasons of your life where you will be limited, and we understand that. But the pursuit and the desire of your heart is to find ways to be with the people of God, to serve and to meet needs, and to find joy in that. Commitment to the church is not optional. It is not conditional. Whether people appreciate you or not, whether people treat you the way you want to be treated or not, whether people are thanking you for doing the things that you're doing or not. Many of us get upset. And our service and our involvement in the church is conditioned based upon people treating us the way that we want to be treated. If we're being patted on the back for everything that we do. Beloved, listen. We need to find ways of affirming and thanking one another for what God is doing in one another's lives. And for that Christian service, certainly biblical affirmation must be present continually amongst us. Right? But we don't have any excuse to stop serving Christ just because people don't treat us the way that we want to be treated or because we've been burned in the past. If you know God and you're growing in your knowledge of God, it will show itself in the way that you love others and you're committed to the people of God. It is not conditional. Involvement in the church is not conditional. It is not optional. It is not seasonal, all right? Some of you love to sit down and pontificate about the past accomplishments and the things that God has used you to do and how you've served God, and now you're kind of on cruise control. I'm retired from Christian service. You know what? That's not going to cut it with Jesus. It's not. It's not going to cut it with Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. We, beloved joyfully, motivated by a love for Christ and what He has done for us, should be gratefully striving to serve the Lord. Not just in the past, not boasting in our past accomplishments. What have you done for me lately? Right? Serving the Lord now, beloved. Serving the Lord now. Given your limitations. There's something for us to do in this body, beloved, to care for others. Whether you are an elderly saint or a young teenager or a kid. There are needs all over the place. It doesn't mean that all of our service is going to look the same. We're all going to be able to do it in the same level of intensity. No. But all of us are called to be serving. Commitment to the church, beloved, if you know and are growing in your knowledge of God, is not optional, is it? It is not. If you truly know God and are growing in your knowledge of God, you will do good works and serve Christ if indeed you love Him. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. This is 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Listen, service is motivated by our knowledge of God and what He has done in Christ and that He loved us to the point of death. And He rose from the dead. Why? So that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died and rose from the dead to save us from our sins, beloved. And if you are alive spiritually, then you know this. You know this. And no matter how hard things get... No matter how difficult laborers get, you know that your service is not ultimately in vain, right? You know that. If you're alive in Christ, you will continue to serve Him, even if that may look different at different seasons of your life. You will give your life to serve Christ. And that's what's going to characterize your life. Listen, what does the worthy walk look like? It is a productive walk. What does it look like? It's a growing walk. And next week we're going to see that it is a strong walk and a thankful walk. This lifestyle of conduct worthy of the gospel, beloved, is two things. One, it is supernatural, spirit-empowered, isn't it? We cannot be fruit-bearing people devoted to glorifying Christ by serving our brethren without the power of the Spirit of God. And we're going to see that next week. But the other thing about this conduct worthy of the gospel, listen to this, it's countercultural. 
It's countercultural. In our culture, we are told that living for yourself is why you are here. What does Paul say? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, right? We don't live for ourselves. Our culture says, live for yourself. Do everything you can to get all the toys that you can in this world, right? It's all for personal accomplishment. Reach your own goals, your own agendas. Paul prays, no, live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in all respects. In our culture, we're told that doing good and loving others is for the purpose of advancing your cause, your agenda, or even gaining acceptance before God in some capacity. Paul says, no, 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 no. Bear fruit in every good work, not for personal accolade, but for Christ and for his people. Different, countercultural. You're not going to hear that in the world. In some way, shape, or form, it will always be that people are doing things in some capacity to exalt themselves and to raise themselves up. Rather than exalting Christ. In our culture, there are people who say, I know God, and I'm growing into a deeper relationship with God. And yet, when you survey their life, there's nothing that shows that. God is nowhere to be found. People don't want to hear what this book says anymore. They want to shut God down. It won't happen. It won't happen. But we have people in our culture who say, oh yeah, we're all worshipers of God. Paul says, no, 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 no. To know God is to know Christ. And to know Christ means to turn from your sins and trust in Christ that you may be forgiven of your sins and enter into that relationship with God whereby you know Him and are continuing to know Him in this life, right? Counter-cultural. Counter-cultural. May God help us, beloved, to be people who walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in our respects. And we'll finish second part next week. Let's pray. Our Father, O oh Lord, help us to be people who walk in a manner worthy of your calling, pleasing you in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, Lord, not because we are accepted or saved on the basis of our works, of our righteousness. No, Lord, we are saved solely on the basis and the righteousness of Christ. And yet you have saved us that we would be zealous for good deeds, that we would do good for your glory, not our own, and for the good of others. Help us to be people who continue to know you and to grow in the knowledge of you and reflect that in the way that we live our lives, Lord. Oh, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, I pray that they might realize and come to grips with the fact that the only way to do that is by faith in Jesus. I pray that you might expose and reveal their sins to them today, that they might be raised from spiritual death, Lord and that you might do the great miracle of regeneration in their heart and life, Lord, that they may be born again today. We ask you all of these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.